You're listening to Lost in History with Scott Miller. Thousands of people streamed along the manicured flower beds of Buffalo's Delaware Park early in the morning of September 6, 1901, a portrait of America in the Gilded Age. Women in full-length skirts, adopting the fashion of the iconic Gibson girl, kept a wary eye on excited children. Men had donned their straw boater hats for what promised to be an unseasonably warm day. Up ahead, the scent of grilling sausages and the bellow of an elephant signaled they'd almost arrived at the Pan American Exposition. Nearing the end of its run, the expo had delighted visitors for months, and this was going to be an especially exciting day. At 4 p.m., President William McKinley would appear and shake hands with the public at the fair's concert hall, the Temple of Music. McKinley loved such events. Naturally gregarious, he once said, everyone in that line has a smile and a cheery word. I feel better for the contact. The president's handlers, though, were nervous. The head of his security team had recently chased a shadowy figure off the grounds of McKinley's private home in Canton, Ohio. Twice they had tried to cancel the event, but the president insisted it go on ahead. No one would want to hurt me, he once chuckled. Also entering the fair that day was a quiet, slightly built 28-year-old man named Leon Sholgosh. Hidden in his pocket was a 32 caliber Johnson revolver he'd purchased from Walbridge's hardware store on Main Street in Buffalo. I'm Scott Miller. History is typically told through the stories of the great and the famous. There are over 15,000 biographies of Lincoln. Yet I'm intrigued by the less well-known people who have also dramatically shaped the world. Some are heroes and some are scoundrels. Some desperately sought a place in history, others had it thrust upon them. In my podcast, Lost in History, I'll be telling their stories. For season one, I will be drawing on people I discovered while researching my first book, The President and the Assassin, McKinley, Terror, and Empire at the Dawn of the American Century. This was an amazing period when much of the nation we now recognize first came into focus. In this episode, I will tell you the tragic story of the man who murdered the president at the fair that September day. Leon Shulgash was born in Michigan in 1873, only a month after his pregnant mother had waddled off a ship from Prussia. Life for the families of newly arrived immigrants in America was never easy, and his was no exception. The Shulgash clan moved repeatedly first around Michigan, then to Pennsylvania, and finally to Ohio in search of better jobs. Leon's mother died during childbirth when he was 10, and his father soon married a woman with whom young Leon didn't get along. Still, Shulgosh had it better than others. His family was largely spared the horrors of tenement housing in crowded cities like New York, and Leon was able to stay in school until he was 14, a rare privilege for immigrant children. He was, in fact, one of the top students in his class. His brother would say Leon was the best scholar of them all. He was obedient, too, and did what his father said. Yet throughout his childhood, Leon always seemed to keep to himself and could be painfully socially awkward. When other kids would gather after school to go fishing or play in the snow, Leon found reasons not to join them. 
His father would later recall that Leon did not have a single close playmate. By the time he was 17, Leon Shogash had matured into a handsome young man with a slim build, sandy hair, and intelligent blue eyes. With his family, he'd settled in Cleveland and quickly found work at one of the most successful corporations in America, the Cleveland Rolling Mill Company, which employed ingenious new technologies to produce wire and nails, products in high demand during America's westward expansion. The job was tough. He regularly worked 12-hour night shifts. And as he had his whole life, Shogash remained socially distant. He would often eat lunch by himself, but he made a respectable wage and life seemed to offer promise. Everything about Shogash's life abruptly changed in 1893. In that year, the United States suffered one of the most devastating financial panics in its history. Desperate to slash costs, the CEO of Cleveland Rolling announced wage cuts. The steel union quickly responded by calling a strike. Shulgash walked the picket line and wandered the streets of Cleveland. Angry and idle, he grew resentful about the power of big companies. He began to attend meetings of labor radicals who he met in crowded, smoky bars and restaurants. At the same time, he turned on one of the cornerstones of Shulgash family life, the Catholic Church. When the pastor of the Stanislaw Parish asked Shulgash for donations, he refused telling the priest that anarchy was his religion now. Americans were, in 1896, mesmerized by one of the most dramatic presidential contests in history. Democrat William Jennings Bryan, a gifted speaker, crisscrossed the country by train, delivering a populist message born of his Nebraska roots. His opponent, William McKinley, had been a hero in the Civil War, and by virtue of dogged hard work, had risen from country lawyer to a member of Congress and to governor of Ohio. McKinley lacked charisma, but deeply religious, he was solid and reliable. He spent long evenings with his wife Ida, who never recovered her emotional strength after the deaths of their two children from diseases. Moderate by nature and a consensus builder, McKinley was liked by just about everybody. But his manager, Mark Hanna, was a ruthless political operative who lined up massive donations to fund McKinley's campaign against Bryan. In November, McKinley won a solid victory, ushering in a period during which Republicans would hold the White House for 16 years. Shogosh spent six months on strike against Cleveland Rolling, but with money running out, he had to go back to work. At first, Shulgash seemed to do well. He was promoted to assistant superintendent of some of the machines, and in an era when employers would find workers for mistakes or arriving late, his record was nearly spotless. But in 1897, Shulgash noticed a shortness of breath and came to believe he had contracted syphilis. In August 1898, Shulgash approached his boss and abruptly announced he could not continue working. He would join the rest of his family on a farm in Warrensville, Ohio, outside Cleveland. There, he immediately got on everybody's nerves. Day after day, week after week, Shogosh lazed about, reading and sleeping in. Normally neat and well-kept, he had become, as his brother put it, all ragged out. 
He often made his dinner by himself and took it to his room, almost hiding from his brothers and sisters. His family taunted Leon with names like Old Woman, which he angrily snapped at. When pressed too hard to work, he would reply that he was unwell. If he really was sick, his brother said, he should go to the hospital, a suggestion that Sholgosh refused to heed. Doctors, he loudly proclaimed, were only for rich people. Feeling suspicions that he was a malingerer, Sholgosh would often walk half a mile from the farm to the local village, where he would read newspapers in search of stories about social radicals. In July 1900, a story about the murder of Italian King Umberto caught his attention. An Italian-American named Gaetano Bresci had traveled to Italy and murdered the king because of his repressive rule. Sholgosh was so impressed by Bresci's bravery and ambition that he clipped an article about the murder and put it in his wallet. One person aspired Sholgosh above all others, the most famous anarchist in America, Emma Goldman. A Russian immigrant, Goldman was well known throughout the country by the turn of the century for her fiery, radical rhetoric. She was so often thrown in jail for inciting violence that she always kept a small paperback book with her to pass the time behind bars. Sholgosh first saw Goldman speak at Cleveland's Memorial Hall. Her words struck him like a thunderbolt. She captured in passionate, articulate terms emotions he'd been feeling for years. After the talk, he approached Goldman and asked for reading suggestions. Among the publications Sholgosh soon began to study was the country's leading radical journal in the 1890s, The Free Society. President McKinley was a frequent target of its writers, who accused him of being more absolute monarch than King Edward. They especially condemned McKinley's foreign policy. He had fought Spain over the future of Cuba, annexed Hawaii, and led the United States into a bloody conflict in the Philippines. By the spring of 1901, Sholgosh could no longer stand his life among the chickens and sibling rivalries on the family farm outside Cleveland, and abruptly announced to his family he was leaving, to where he refused to say. During that summer, Sholgosh drifted around the Midwest. For a time, he searched for Goldman. Later, for reasons that aren't clear, he headed to Buffalo, New York, where he checked into a boarding house. The other guests there were puzzled by the quiet stranger. He didn't socialize with any of them, eating crackers and drinking milk in a corner of the living room rather than joining them for meals. During the day, he would disappear to where nobody knew. After a brief stay, he traveled to Chicago. There, a newspaper headline caught his eye. President McKinley, he read, would appear at the Pan American Exposition in early September. That same day, Sholgosh purchased a ticket for Buffalo and found a room at John Nowak's saloon, telling the owner his name was John Doe. At 6.20, the evening of September 4, 1901, McKinley's train arrived at the exposition station. Waiting in the large crowd that had gathered to greet the president was Sholgosh. At some point during his travels, he decided that to help working men and women, that he had to kill the president. At the train station, Sholgosh forced his way through the crowd to be near the president, but his pushing and shoving won the attention of a police detail who forced him back. He would, he told himself, have another chance the next day at McKinley's big speech. 
September 5th, 1901 was a beautiful day in Buffalo. The entire city, it seemed, was in a good mood. Thousands of people had by 9 a.m. crowded around the Milburn House along Lincoln Parkway, hoping to see McKinley. By the time the president got to the fairgrounds several hours later, tens of thousands were waiting. Dressed in a frock coat, a neat black bow tie, and a tall silk hat, the president ascended a stage draped with red, white, and blue bunting. Always attentive, he kept a hand on his wife Ida to make sure she didn't slip. Waiting in the crowd not far from the president was Sholgosh with his gun. Though close, Sholgosh knew the president was at the outer range of his accuracy, and Sholgosh was being jostled by the tightly packed crowd. But before he could make up his mind, McKinley finished and disappeared into a sea of security and dignitaries. Foiled again, Sholgosh went home, ordered a whiskey, and contemplated another final attempt the following day. September 6th was scheduled to be a relaxing day for McKinley. He and Ida visited Niagara Falls, and the president was in a joyful mood, climbing around on Goat Island like a schoolboy. There was just one last event on his calendar, his meet and greet at the Temple of Music. That afternoon, as McKinley's train from Niagara to Buffalo passed through rolling apple orchards, fair organizers prepared for the president's arrival. Security was taken seriously, but it was rudimentary. Chairs were arranged to corral people into a single line, which security agents could study. Soldiers with no special training had been ordered to form columns through which visitors would pass, so they too could look for suspicious behavior. A large wooden blind decorated with an American flag had been constructed behind where the president was to meet the public. Waiting outside near the front of the line of people hoping to meet McKinley was Sholgosh. He looked, some later said, like a tradesman or a mechanic on holiday. Just in front of him was a dark-haired, Italian-looking man. Standing behind was James Parker, a six-foot, four-inch, African-American waiter from Atlanta. Both would figure prominently in events that would unfold in the coming minutes. At shortly before 4 p.m., McKinley gave the order to let visitors enter the music hall. Organist William Gompf coaxed the massive Edmunds Howard pipe organ to life and began a tasteful Bach sonata. The crowd reverently and quietly moved forward as McKinley offered a few words to each visitor. There was one brief moment of excitement when an enthusiastic boy broke from his mother's hands and rushed forward, but McKinley warmly greeted the youngster. As Sholgosh neared the president, the security detail was transfixed with the man in front of him. With a tussle of black hair, olive skin, and a mustache, he fit the prevailing stereotype of an immigrant anarchist. Further complicating things was that the man refused to release McKinley from his handshake. Agent Samuel Ireland had to usher the man along. Sholgosh then stepped forward and withdrew his right hand from his pocket. Eyewitnesses would later say the white handkerchief that covered it appeared to be part of a medical dressing. Then it became horrifyingly clear he was hiding a pistol. From point-blank range, Sholgosh pulled the trigger twice in rapid succession. With a surprised expression, McKinley stumbled forward, blood starting to ooze onto his white vest. Before Sholgosh could fire a third time, Parker, who had been standing behind, delivered a weighty blow onto his neck 
and tried to grab the revolver. Foster, the president's bodyguard, screamed, Get the gun! In the cacophony and confusion, Shogosh was heard to utter one sentence, I'd done my duty. It took McKinley's security team 18 minutes to transport him to the Ferris Hospital, a small facility more suited to sunburns and upset stomachs than presidential assassinations. The only staff on hand were a half a dozen nurses serving one-month tours at the fair. As they did what they could to make the president comfortable, runners were dispatched around Buffalo to find surgeons. When the doctors arrived, one directly from the barber, they were soon overwhelmed by the job in front of them. Lighting was so poor in the operating theater that they had to use a mirror to reflect sunlight onto the wound. There were few instruments. The hospital lacked such basic equipment as retractors. The president's huge girth didn't help. One of the surgeons said it was like working at the bottom of a deep hole. The team quickly found one of the two bullets. It had hit a button and simply fell out of the wound but a second one had sliced into McKinley's abdomen on the left side and could not be located. There was a primitive x-ray machine on display at the fairgrounds, but the doctors decided that using it might disturb their patient. In fact, McKinley was already in shock. Try though they might, the surgeons could not find the second bullet and decided to simply leave it where it was and stitch the president up. That evening, McKinley was transported back to the Milburn house where a makeshift hospital room had been assembled. It seemed at first the president would recover. On September 9th, the New York Times wrote that there was great hope for McKinley and that all symptoms were favorable. Teddy Roosevelt, the vice president, told reporters he was absolutely sure McKinley would fully recover. But the president seemed to take a turn for the worse on September 12th. When doctors performed one of their regular checkups, they noticed that his pulse had weakened alarmingly. Through that afternoon and into the morning of Friday the 13th, McKinley's condition continued to mysteriously decline. Doctors didn't know it, but internal wounds from the bullet traveling through his body had not healed. Gangrene had set in. With his wife by his side, McKinley urged everyone to be brave. God's will be done, not ours, he said. Drifting in and out of consciousness, he died at 2.15 a.m. on September 14, 1901. Around the country, a grieving nation soon gave way to one seeking vengeance. The state had appointed two reluctant former state Supreme Court judges to take over Shulgash's defense. One, Robert Titus said, I cannot understand why I've been selected for this unpleasant duty. I'm very much depressed by the announcement. Shulgash's lawyers half-heartedly considered a novel strategy of trying to establish that their client was mentally ill. Yet a brief examination found Shulgash to be a fit mind. What's more, he refused to cooperate with his legal team, giving them no new evidence from which to construct a defense. The only loose end to the entire affair was whether Shulgash had worked alone. He seemed such a simple man, one incapable of carrying out an assassination on his own. Try though they might, investigators could find no hint of a wider conspiracy. The trial itself unfolded at warp speed. A jury was selected in two hours, and by the following afternoon, Shulgash was found guilty. During the entire proceedings, Shulgash hardly uttered a word. At sentencing, he would only say that he had worked alone. There was no one else by me. No one told me to do it. No one paid me, he insisted. 
With that, he was formally sentenced to die on October 28 and led from the courtroom. At 5.30 a.m. on October 29th, guards escorted Shulgosh to the electric chair at the Auburn Prison in upstate New York. Though he didn't resist, Shulgosh was so nervous and weak that he nearly had to be carried. He was seated in a rough wooden execution chair, and heavy straps were fastened to his wrists and ankles. His lips quivered as uniformed guards fixed a leather mask over his face. Searching the room, Shulgosh cried out, I killed the president for the good of the laboring people, the good people. I am not sorry for my crime, and I am sorry I can't see my father. Prison warden Warren Meade then gave the order to send 1,700 volts through his body. Few people today remember McKinley's assassin, yet his act that September day in 1901 had profound consequences for the nation. For starters, it prompted a thorough examination of how to protect presidents, which led to the creation of the modern Secret Service and a permanent detail to protect the president. It also elevated Vice President Theodore Roosevelt, who helped make the presidency what it is today. Roosevelt increased the power of the executive branch by enforcing strong antitrust legislation at home, while increasing the influence of the United States overseas. I hope you enjoyed this week's show. If you have any questions or feedback, please reach out to me on Twitter at Lost, the letter N, History Pod. And be sure to check out my website, www.scottmillerauthor.com. We'll see you next week.